1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sine Janolu. I studied neuroscience and then bioengineering, graduating with a PhD from ETH Zurich in Switzerland. Currently, I'm working in the diagnostics industry. Today, I have with me Lucy Cook to talk about her book, her new book, Bitch, a revolutionary guide to sex, evolution, and the female animal. In the last few decades, a revolution has been brewing in zoology and evolutionary biology. Lucy Cook introduces us to a righteous cast of animals and the scientists studying them that are redefining the female of species. Uh, The Bitches in Bitch overturn outdated binary expectations of bodies, brains, biology and behaviour. Lucy Cook's brilliant new book will change how you think about sex, sexual identity and sexuality in animals and also the very forces that shape evolution. Lucy Cook is a New York Times bestselling author, award-winning filmmaker and National Geographic Explorer with a Masters in Zoology from Oxford University, where she was taught by Richard Dawkins. She loves travel and adventure and has a soft spot for some of the planet's strangest and most misunderstood animals. As well as writing books, Lucy is also an accomplished photographer, filmmaker and broadcaster who has produced and presenter of award-winning natural history documentaries for BBC, uh, National Geographic, Discovery, PBS and many more. Lucy, great to have you here. Uh, Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, Before we dive into the many interesting themes you explore in the book, can you talk a little bit about what motivated you to write this book?
0: Ah, yeah, well that's a great opening question because uh, I was I was motivated by what I was taught at university when I studied zoology in the end of the 80s uh, by by Richard Dawkins in fact that it didn't it just it didn't chime with me it didn't make a lot of sense. I was taught that females were were passive sort of second rate players in the story of evolution and you know p- that, that that there's this sort of fundamental universal law, which is that because males produce lots of cheap mobile sperm and females produce just a few amount of eggs, that somehow we'd we'd drawn the short straw in the lottery of life and we were doomed to pay second fiddle to the to the to the to the sperm shooters for all eternity because. They, 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 that, 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 they, that they, they, just because of the gamete, the different in gamete size, um, it meant that males would be would be promiscuous and dominant, and, and females would be would be coy and chaste, and 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 yeah, I just, I, it was a very <laughs> dispiriting message to be taught, and so uh, it stayed with me, and and then over the years, I've I've realised that 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 isn't the case, so it seemed to me that this would be a great subject for a book.
1: And indeed, uh, it is. I mean, um, I also um, really appreciated the, the language that you made, the scientific studies and concepts very, very much accessible to uh, to everybody, in fact. And I personally actually laughed out loud, I don't know how many times while reading the book. So it was really entertaining as well as scientifically educating. So thanks a lot.
0: Oh, that's great that you think that because my intention is to is to write things that are scientifically rigorous i mean my my source material for this book was was scientific journals it wasn't other, even other books, let alone the in, you know, uh, it was, it was, it was scientific journals, and they, they can be a little dry. The information they contain is extraordinary, but, but so my, my, my aim is to, is to write in a way that that reaches the widest possible audience, and, and humor is a good way of of smuggling in learning.
1: I think definitely, definitely worked worked in my case. So um, let's then start um, uh, with one of the themes that you that you talk about in the book. Uh, you call it scientific phallocracy. What does this mean? Well, it's just that
0: science has been dominated, or certainly the science of evolutionary biology has been dominated by men, and and you know they, um, 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 you know, a man is just it, science is all about asking questions, you know, and and one tends to ask questions that are relevant to you, you know, and you're so. The fact that science has been dom- evolutionary biology has been dominated by men means that, that 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 it skewed the perspective. It means that 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 questions have been asked from a male perspective, and you know, it, quite understandably, great male scientists not necessarily interested in in you know the the contribution of mothers to the evolutionary process you know because it's it's not where their interest lies you know they're interested in in in, in looking at their own reflections so so it- it, it, it this sort of domination of of, of, of male, male domination of science has 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 skewed the way that we we view the female animal. So that that's what I mean by the scientific philocracy.
1: And how how did it influence the whole uh, study? You already have mentioned a little bit, like certain parts are are ignored. How did the scientific philocracy then, for so many years, dominated the field and basically obscured in some way uh, how females and basically all. So beyond binary um, uh, animals and uh, different sexualities were were ignored for so long.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's because it's you know, to be honest with you, and it pains me to have to say this, but Darwin is largely to blame, basically, because you know. Darwin, one of the greatest scientists of all time, you know, his his theory of evolution by natural selection is one of the greatest theories in science still. I mean, you know, and he is my hero. I'm, I studied evolutionary biology and I'm inspired by Darwin. But the fact is, is that, you know, he's... He was a Victorian man, and and what's extraordinary to, was extraordinary to me was was how much cultural bias had infiltrated his science. And you know, even someone who's as meticulous and brilliant a scientist as Darwin is not immune to the to the stranglehold of cultural bias. And so. When he wrote his second great theoretical masterpiece, which is The Descent of Man and, and Selection in Relation to Sex, which attempted to define the sexes, he was swayed by Victorian culture. And so the female animal came out marginalized and misunderstood like a Victorian housewife. And, and and you know, to a certain extent, a lot of the things that he, 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 he wrote about, I, I'm not even sure he even entirely really in his heart of hearts believe but I think probably for Darwin having caused so much controversy with his um, his first theory of evolution by natural selection and the church having been so angry he probably felt there was enough controversy in one lifetime so so he did toe the line and, and female animals were, were, de- were depicted as passive coy and chaste you know as, as, as was seemly as as seemly for a female males were dominant in Victorian society so that's how he portrayed them but of course Darwin carries a huge amount of influence. He's a genius, and so because of him saying this, it meant that for decades, scientists that followed in his wake suffered from confirmation bias, and so they just they just saw the passive female prototype um, and, and and looked for evidence of that, and anything that was con- contrary to that was was dismissed as an inconvenient anomaly.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned it also at the end, and it comes across, I mean, in the in the many chapters when you explore various themes. I personally, you know, having studied science, couldn't believe that people would, you know, Darwin, starting from Darwin, and then afterwards, the observations, scientific data. It, you have to believe when you study science that science is objective, and you interpret the data, obviously, but you still control your experiments and so on so it cannot so i was very shocked to see how much of these uh, you know belief systems and values and everything was projected into the interpretation of of science this is really unbelievable
0: yeah i mean me too i mean you know it's the problem with paradigms isn't it you know that they you know that they they, they restrict the view of, of 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 sort of blue sky thinking really mm-hmm. and and you know this. I mean, you know, there's a, a great example in the book. Is you know, and, and, and is is from the is the um, the uh, gosh, what's the bird? The bird that's the um, oh, Marslof and Boulder and the pinion jays. That's it. So the, the pinion jay experiment is a great example that I have in the introduction, which is, you know, uh, it's a social social bird, flocks in in large numbers. The the scientists who study it, who are exemplary scientists, the experts in pinion jays in the 1980s wrote a a book about it where they were looking for the, the dominance network uh, in in this social species, and 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 you know, assumed went looking for the alpha male. and When they couldn't find any aggression in males, they tried baiting the animals and with with sort of treats and and you know to try and incite some sort of territorial war. And they were unable to do this, and they ended up having to sort of base their experiments on what amounted to to birds giving each other dirty looks, which is like <laughs> extraordinary. But meticulously, because they were great scientists, they recorded all the data. And every time they saw one of these annoyed looks, they diligently record it and of course they had seen aggressive behaviour, which they'd also recorded, um, which, you know, violent attacks of birds midair, but, but none of this made it into their dominance network because all the birds involved were female and not male. And they, they wrote off this female aggression um, as being an avian version of pre, pre-menstrual PMS, <laughs> pre-breeding syndrome, they called it. So, you know, just sort of dismissed the classic thing, females and their messy hormones, sweep that to one side. You know, so, you know, this is this isn't a conspiracy. This is just blinkered science. And I and I, you know, there are many examples of this where where, you know, it, it just it, it, it's, it's it's the paradigm that is constricting the view, basically. And these are great scientists, but they're just um, they're just behaving in a in a blinkered way.
1: Yeah, and and such a shame. I mean, and at the same time, it's quite nice to see there are so many others who are trying to turn turn this around. So you also mentioned um, so many scientists that uh, kind of try to understand how um, female reproduction works, how it develops, how what are the roles of females in uh, so. Like communities of animals, and basically they do occupy many many different roles, right? So there are communities where it's, there's female dominance, for example.
0: Exactly. I mean, you know, that that that's that's the thing is, I think what I wanted to sort of showcase with the book is, I'm not trying to say that females are more dominant than males, and you know, I'm just saying that there's a huge variety, and actually, you just can't pigeonhole females in this one sort of passive stereotype that actually all these different systems exist, because, you know, for lots of different reasons. And, um, and, and, and it was really fun for me to experiencing and, and investigating. And there's just this glorious diversity that exists out there.
1: Um so uh, I was also um, curious about, you mentioned um, one of the topics you go into is the female choice. So this is actually something that Darwin even tried to get it right. But as you said, a little bit discouraged from it. You mention it as the um, mad out in the evolutionary attic of Darwinian theory. So can you tell us a little bit about this?
0: Yeah, so, you know, Darwin... Actually, you know, he 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 said that his theory of sexual selection, which is um, that there was the follow-up to to theory to to natural selection, and it explains seeks to explain the differences between the sexes and focuses on those. and And he sees that sexual selection is driven by two forces: male competition for mates and then female choice. And and he's absolutely right; those forces do um, uh, shape evolution. Uh, but there are. It's just. It's just. There's a lot more. Lot more to it than that. But but the fact that he'd given females this agency in in choice was incredibly heretical at the time because the 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 the, the reality of that is that is that female choice is shaping the the evolution of of males and this was not something that went down very well in victorian england and in fact alfred russell wallace who was the co-author of the theory of evolution by natural selection became its greatest detractor um but you know darwin was absolutely right female choice is is responsible for some of the most whimsical and and extraordinary traits in nature. I mean, if you see something that's extraordinarily flamboyant or bizarre, generally that is the product of female choice. And I find this fascinating because it it basically female choice was revived in about, started to be revived about 30, 40 years ago, and is now a very active area of, of study. But what's fascinating is we still don't really know why females are choosing certain males. You know, there's there's lots of theories about it. You know, is are they choosing for good genes or or is it just purely aesthetic choice? And these these arguments are extensions of the argument that's been going on since Darwin's time. Um, but yeah, I mean, things like you know the the proboscis monkey's ridiculous pendulous nose or the peacock's tail. These are all the products of of female choice and. I spent some time in the um, in the mountains of Northern California in the winter, in the snowdrifts, observing the sage grouse, which which has a um, a courtship behaviour that is the product of female choice that is amongst the most bizarre things you've ever seen in your life. So the males they're like about the size of a turkey, and they've got these. Extraordinary white fan um, tails, but then they also got these sort th- of throat sacks that they can inflate that, that, that burst forth like, like sort of nippleless shop dummy breasts from their from their chest out of these white feathers like and then they make this sort of doink noise at the same time so they're sort of like they're kind of like dancing to their own body popping beat and it's like you're literally like evolution what were you thinking like what on earth females what are you choosing ladies what is it how did you manage to shake that but it was fascinating because Gail Patricelli, who's been studying this behavior for like 10 years, she's managed to infiltrate it by creating a robot female craft. It's <laughs> just amazing. It's on wheels. and It's like this taxidermy stuff. Burden. She drives it into the lek amongst all these body popping males where they're all showing off trying to attract a female and was able to sort of really kind of like decode this sort of black box of female choice. It's her view that there's no one thing that females are choosing, that basically the males are having to do something that's very energetically demanding. And so by choosing a male who's, you know, because this doing this strut and this beatboxing requires a lot of energy. And so by doing that, they're, they're choosing the best genes for their young. But what she's also discovered, which is really fascinating, is that they are, it, it's not just a question of the best male wins. What she found out is that the male's, have to listen to the females and respond to subtle cues that they're making. Otherwise, they won't get to mate. So so it's a dialogue. It's not just a sort of, you know, the the, the best male wins, which is the standard. You know, like, I mean, you twitch on any natural history documentary, like the mating game that was on recently, the big BBC natural history and all I can talk about is males will compete and 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 the best male wins. It's not that simple. The males have got to listen to the females, and and the, and, and it's not just as simple as well, certainly the case of the sage grouse and also the bird, which Gail Patricelli studied in, and it's also been found in spiders as well. So, you know, this this idea that that females are a passive is is slowly being broken down, even even in that case, which is. Uh, gratifying
1: <laughs> <laughs> so i mean this exchange as you said so listening and responding and you know that is continuously um, happening between the uh, females and males um this is somehow also reflected in the development of genitalia you also go go through that um in the in the book that there was this focus of um male genitalia for many years everybody was focusing on the penis and then uh, Basically, female genitalia was just imagined like a hollow tube, and passively, as you say, also in the behavior, uh, also physically, just doing nothing. Egg is waiting there, you know. But this is also not the case, right?
0: Absolutely. Ah, uh, this. I'm glad you brought this up because this is one of my favorite stories. It's just amazing, really. So, so yeah. This um, it, this this idea of female passivity, just it, as you say, it extended towards um female morphology, that genital anatomy, you know, and that we were just considered to be passive tubes that, that um, the received sperm. But um, th- There's a woman called um, Patricia Brennan who who's who, who's at Mount Holyoke uh, in Massachusetts and um, she's just the most amazing scientist and she's been described as scientifically unstoppable and she really is. She's <laughs> just a sort of extraordinary character and she is the first person really to... To look inside a female and just you know to see what is going on with female anatomy, and specifically, she was interested in birds. And there's there's a few groups of of birds, the most ancient lines of birds that still have penises. Most birds just have both both sexes have a cloaca, but in the case of some birds, they have a penises. And boy, do they have penises! So but, <laughs> I've got extraordinary penises i mean they're longer they're they're longer than in the case of the argentinian lake duck it's actually like longer than the 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 bird itself when it's fully extended and not only that it's corkscrew right (laughs) i mean it's it's an extraordinary organ and for for years male scientists have waxed lyrical about the extraordinary length of the duck penis i mean (laughs) it must must just be a product of this male competition and because regrettably you know you, you get um duck mating happens in two ways one a female will um, choose her mate through sort of a rigorous um, courtship routine but a lot of the males that don't get chosen end up forming groups and then will sexually coerce females in groups and it's a really unpleasant thing if you see it it's really horrible females are sort of flapping away and they're being kind of um, uh, coerced sexually coerced by these males And and so the idea was that you know this incredibly long penis had evolved as a result of these sexually coercive acts and the longest male penis was the one that was, 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 um, was fertilizing the egg. And that's what drove its length. Well, Patricia Brennan was like, yeah, very interesting. The male penis, it certainly is extraordinary. But has anybody checked out what kind of garage he's parking his car in? That's her actual word. She's so brilliant, and and she found that actually the female, rather than being a passive tube, actually had a similarly extraordinary vagina, and that it was labyrinthine and full of these blind po- pockets, and and actually, when the male, uh, the, the male duck penis isn't like a, a mammal penis. It, it actually spends its life un, in unfurled. Um, inside the cloaca a bit like a sort of a coiled up sock and then it's inflated at high speed with lymphatic um a bit like a sort of party hooter you know you get (laughs) a party hooter at parties and so it sort of shoots out with party hooter but and so this penis would get caught in the blind pockets and unfurl back on itself and so basically the female has evolved a system of of blocking the male penis and so that that was actually what's driven the length so and, and and this explains why the the coercive acts of sex um, result in so few fertilizations, which had been a sort of mystery to scientists up until this point. And so Brennan has rescued the female from being a victim not only of sexual coercion; she's still that, but of losing um, the, the, the 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 autonomy of who who fertilizes her egg. And in evolutionary terms, that's the thing that matters. So. So actually now she's she's now a winner in in the evolutionary arms race. So and this idea of conflict between the sexes has has shaped a lot of a lot of um, uh, a female uh, behavior and morphology.
1: Isn't it so interesting that at the same time we discuss a lot about uh, the pressures for natural selection? Yet, let's say roughly half of the animals we just think of passively and not adapting to anything.
0: I mean it, it I mean it, it, it is it's ludicrous really, when you say it out loud, but I mean that's what's generally thought. I mean it, it's still considered widely that males are just more variable than females, and what that means in evolutionary terms is that males. Are um effectively more evolved because variation is the grit that drives evolution forward. So if females don't vary and we're all the same, then we're therefore we just we're somehow we're not invited to the evolutionary party because we're too boring. You know, I mean, it's just it's absolute lunacy. But but it, yet these these old canards persist. Yeah.
1: So, and then even in cases, so for example, you have a chapter on sexual cannibalism. So even in the cases where uh, the female is bigger and even eats her mate, I also realize that there's a lot of negative connotation of this like femme fatale and this like horrible and so on, whereas the males are regarded as uh you know heroes and the bigger ones, biggest antlers and and so on so uh, but at the end, again, if we look at the science, there's a reason for this cannibalism as well. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: yeah, this is something that um uh, you know Darwin himself wrote about and noted that that um that uh, it existed. It was sort of some. There's some hilarious bits in the Descent of Man of his sort of horrified, you know, this sort of male zoologist who'd written to him was completely appalled by the fact that this enormous female was was eating males. In, in the case of spiders, sexual cannibalism is rife among spiders. I didn't actually realise myself until writing this book that that when you see a spider web with a big spider in the middle of it that's almost always a female because it's only really the females who who build the webs and males are sort of these sort of small tiny in comparison often like you know 125 times smaller in the case of the golden orb weaver spider and the males are really just sort of mobile sacks of sperm they often don't have fangs or venom and they're and, and 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 you know their mission in life is is to mate you know as is the females but she just she has a lot of time on her hand because she lives for many years. So she's often, her priorities aren't quite the same. She might be in the mood for mating, but it might be that she wants to fasten herself up so she can develop more eggs. And so... You have again, as with the ducks, you have this conflict of interest, you see, and it's th- these these evolutionary arms races are just the most glorious things because they produce such extraordinary um, outcomes. So, in the case of spiders, you have you know a, a tiny little male who wants to mate. You have a female who's much bigger, who, who who's not maybe maybe wants to mate, maybe doesn't, um, but 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 she definitely wants to. <laughs> she may want to eat her mate, you know, and so. So, she, the, the, in order to, for the male to stop being eaten by the female, they, they've they've evolved all these extraordinary tactics. Um, like, so so often, males will will bring the female you know, like a sort of the equivalent of a box of chocolates, a sort of dead fly that's wrapped <laughs> up in silk. Sometimes they'll engage in threesomes, so they'll they'll wait until the female's mating with another spider and then they'll nip in there and join in. Um sometimes they'll tie the female up with silken threads to try and immobilize her so she can't eat him. I mean they're, they're sort of fantastic kind of quite sort of kinky repertoire of of sexual acts. But this whole idea of sexual cannibalism was horrifying to male scientists and you know it's sort of really sort of you know destroyed the natural order of this incredibly dominant sexually promiscuous female but it you know it makes perfect sense because actually the male although he may he may have lost his life and 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 be consumed by the female at least uh, he has fertilized the eggs, and and his his own body is nourishing the eggs. In fact, there's this brilliant scientist Eileen Heberts who's done a study where she's fed females um, male spiders of the same species and the equivalent amount of protein from flies, and found that the, the female spiders gain more weight from eating their 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 uh, their species, and so. You know, there's something uniquely nutritious about cannibalism that, that, that benefits her eggs. So, you know, it, 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 and, it, and it's one of these things, it seems very tantalizing. But, you know, actually, the females are just being assiduously maternal. They're, they're, they're not these sort of dangerous sexy creatures they're just they're just being good mums you know and funnily enough the dads that are getting eaten the the males that are getting eaten they're just being good dads as well it's just it's it's good parenting as wild as it
1: seems (laughs) yeah indeed and there's also a lot of um, um, uh, studies that you cite about motherhood and also uh, parenting because this is also one of the Concepts that are very much, uh, you know, put in one one box, one type of mother. It's uh, caring and, and nourishing, but in nature there has been so many ways for both parents actually to take care of their young.
0: Absolutely, you know, that's again, it's another one of Darwin's, um, you know, beliefs was that you know all females are imbued with this this maternal instinct, and so. Um, I was really interested in exploring that because you know I'm, I love frogs, right? They're my favourite animal. I've always been obsessed with frogs, and I know very well that male frogs are a candidate for nature's best dad. You know, and they like they, you know, you get these male frogs that are extremely nurturing over over their young so for example uh poison dart frogs the males that they, they lay there they don't lay their, their their eggs in in ponds but the males will carry the tadpoles around on their back and uh, you know and um and in other cases they'll you know they'll care for them and protect them and the female just lays the eggs and 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 and, and goes off you know so so this is really fascinating to me and it turns out Amazingly, that this extraordinary um, Stanford um, uh, associate professor Lauren O'Connell's actually looked inside the brains of frogs and established that there's this basically there's this neural architecture for nurturing, um, and it's exactly the same in males and females, and it's basically a switch for parenting. So this this mythical maternal instinct. <laughs> actually exists in the brains of males and females and you know she's found it in frogs but Catherine Dulac has found the same neural architecture in mice and she's a Harvard professor and she's very confident that you'd find the same thing in humans so you know I think that's really gratifying for for men to discover that you you know that, that that we we all have this nurturing instinct and of course you know you know, there's in addition to that, with with female mammals, um, oxytocin has a has a big part to play in, in nurturing as well. But but both these cases with this this switch for parenting and with oxytocin, they're not something that you're born with and you instantly feel that they need these these instincts need to be triggered. And so I, I think that's really helpful because for a lot of women, you know, friends of mine that have struggled with various elements of of, of motherhood, you know. You can be. There's a lot of guilt and shame involved in in feeling like you don't find it natural. Well, it's just that the in naturally it, it's something that that progresses slowly in in baby steps, as it were. So, you know, I, I felt really uh, that was a very important message to come across, but also just one that's really nice to know that that, that males and females are, are both capable of of, of great parenting.
1: Yeah, and at the same time, this is again, let's say we have this in our society as a a misconception that, you know, mothers, they devote uh, their lives, it's such a happy thing, and it's so easy to raise um raise a kid and it's easy to do it even with two parents i actually think that is pretty hard it takes a village is definitely true and i was um quite uh, happily surprised to find that this is also indeed the case in in animal kingdom that it also takes a, takes a village
0: absolutely i mean particularly in the case of primates you know because we have these extraordinary brains and and so we need, you know, that you know, babies take a long time to reach independence, and so it, 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 you know, it, it is something that is, 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 is in many cases, is, is a shared uh, activity. So, and, and what's fascinating, I think, is just all the different ways that that you have that um, sharing that load. You know, so in some cases, you'll have. Monogamous partnerships, you know, like the owl monkey, for example, it's a male and female that are devoted together and will 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 share the load. But in other cases, you have these sort of wonderful innovations, like that that you know that that like the the black and white rough lemurs, which I visited in Madagascar, where the females, um, they build these nests like birds high up in the canopy. Um, because you, with Madagascar, it's a very sort of boom or bust environment. You know, you might have no rainfall for years, and so the, the, the trees will will do these abundant fruiting episodes, and then there's this sort of boom of food, and so the the the, prim, the, the, the lemurs, which are primates that that feed on these these black and white rough lemurs. They'll respond by having litters, which is very unusual because normally primates just have the one baby at a time because you know they, they have such a, a, a long development, and um, and they manage this by building these nests high up in the trees and which act as creches. So the females will, well, one female or, 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 or not only just females, males as well. Maybe like the the the, the nurse that looks after the crash for the day <laughs> while the females go off and and feed and do the day job, which is 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 to is to find food to make milk and, and and raise the babies so uh, you know i i, I it, there's all these different ways that um that that females have have or well, in, in the case of primates have have found the help that they needed and so yeah the idea that it's something that can be managed alone is 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 is, is not really realistic <laughs>
1: And um, then I would really also like to touch upon this was um, in the last chapter where you mentioned actually um, rainbows in in evolution, just like these, um, uh, you know, biases like how a female is and a male is in, in the human society so in, in our own uh, society um, heteronormative um, uh, values and understanding of sexuality has also unfortunately plagued uh, the whole science scientific understanding in animals so um, and you also uh, mentioned a lot of researchers, one of which is actually John Roth uh, Garden. And uh, can you tell us a little bit what has she found? And uh, can we could did we caught, catch up a little bit on what we have lost all those years ignoring this diversity in in sexuality?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, uh, I I found this you know for me was 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 the most sort of revelatory part of the research in the book because I it. it Darwin's, you know, stereotypes or the view, way of viewing the world focuses on these differences between the sexes, and we have this assumption that that um, reproduction or, or, or behavior is all just is 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 a male and a female. But of course, um, in in the in the animal kingdom, there's just an enormous variety of sexual expression. I mean, it's absolutely glorious, and 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 it, and it, and it doesn't it just sort of defies binary expectations. So, you know, you have a huge amount of animals that are um, both male and female. And then as Darwin himself studied in the barnacles, the difference is there's this a sort of gradation between um, um, uh, hermaphrodite creatures, which are both sexes to separate sexes. You actually have, you know, in, in the case of barnacles, and he spotted this, you, you can see the evolution, the stages from 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 you know her- um, hermaphrodite through to separate sex, and and biologists today struggle with the terminology for how do you describe these these in between um, you, know, you know it's like proto male or, or you know they, 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 we don't have the language to describe it, and so you know there really is an extraordinary diversity out there, and of course there's there's all sorts of animals that will switch sex within their lives as well, so. One of the most fascinating studies for me is Justin Rhodes, who studies anemone fish. And um, he, uh, you know, he, he's very interested in it from, from what goes on in the brain, right? Because anemone fish, you have, um, everybody knows them, Finding Nemo, a little orange and white clownfish. They in an anemone and you get a male and a female and, and the female's dominant. So she's the bigger one of the two. And then you often have like some sort of uh, immature males in the group as well. And when the f- dominant female is removed, the male um, that was her partner changes sex and becomes female and one of the immature males becomes, um, becomes his her partner. And so this transition enables... Justin to study the feminization of the brain, which is also guess guess what, <laughs> being considered a passive process, which is absolutely extraordinary. The idea that the development of a female brain would be passive, you know, but but that's what was believed that it just sort of passively females just sort of passively develop um, in the absence of testosterone. So so this is you know as he says this is a you know an opportunity to study this, and what he's found with the anemone fish, which is just totally fascinating to me, is that. The transition happens very quickly in terms of behaviour. So the female, the, as soon as the the, the the dominant female is removed, the male um, that is turning into a female starts behaving as a female almost immediately and is recognised as a female by the other fish. But the gonads take up to a year to to catch up with the brain. So the brain happens first, and and, and the gonads catch up later. So. You know, this is sort of really fascinating because it shows how you know sexual identity and sex behavior, or or even you know, can be uncoupled from 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 biological sex, and and that these sort of these uh, you know not necessarily concur with one another, uh, even in a fish. So so I found that 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 really fascinating, and um, and it also just goes to show you know what what I was sort of. You know, and 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 the the parenting switch it, it fits in with this as well, which is, you know, quite a few, uh, you know, Lauren O'Connell and and David Cruz, you know, scientists talk to me about how, you know, really, w- w- males and females are much more alike than we are different. You know, we, we've been looking for these sort of radical differences in our brains and for for, for 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 decades and not found them. You know, and basically, male and female brains are, are more or less the same. So, you know. I I think for that, that was like the the greatest revelation for me. I I actually had to ask them several times. You know, really, there's not really that. You know, there's some differences in the brains of male and females, but they're they're really small. And and we don't have this sort of male brains are from Mars and females are from Venus. This, This idea is tantalizing, but simply not true. And I think that, you know, that was the most sort of, empowering revelation really because it 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 means that uh, you know we're, we're equal you know that that the, the, the equality is 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 available basically
1: yeah and i mean now if um, if we can maybe discuss a little bit so this is what happened unfortunately there was these biases the scientists have projected these things across sexuality reproduction development and evolution in general Um, Now, if we think, okay, we now realize this, what can we do? What should be done now to make sure that, let's say, future studies are are, um, with an objective lens? Um, They're including variety of uh, different um, sexualities, different behaviors without, you know, having the scientist's own belief system and values. So what can we do about this now?
0: Well, I think that, I think, you know, i think that we all need to be aware of bias you know and i and i think that's 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 increasingly the case um and and that we all have bias i mean i'm biased my book is biased you know I'm, i'm 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 telling a different story you know but i you know i i see the world through a certain lens and we all do to a certain extent so i think it's is recognising and being aware of bias is really important. And, of course, you know, the more diversity we have in science, the more voices and the more perspectives, the better science will be because, as we said at the start of this conversation, you know, science comes from questions and one asks questions that are close to your heart or you're interested in your perspective. And, and so by having a diversity of cultures, genders, sexualities, And, you know, not just sexes amongst science is definitely going to make our understanding of the natural world less biased.
1: So also from the scientist perspective, right? So having also different scientists, because this is also even an issue, Uh, female scientists, non-binary scientists getting funding or getting, uh, you know, support for their research. So it goes both ways, also from uh, people with different voices uh, than the dominant one, as well as the topics.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's still, uh, you know, there's still for um, the LGBTQ community are still massively underrepresented in, in science and, and, and there's a big drop off rate as well. So, which is, you know, we need to sort of, we need to nurture and value alternative perspectives. Um, And, you know, I mean, I think certainly, you know, females are still underrepresented in science and I mean, there's still this idea that, that, you know, Females aren't as good at science, you know. That somehow our brains are different, and we don't understand scientific process in the same way. I mean, it's rubbish. You know, it's just there's no there's no evidence to support this idea. But it's just a really it's a really popular myth. And you know, you've got to sort of wonder why these these myths that 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 sort of put females down are so popular uh, in, in a in when science is still dominated by men. I mean. You know, there's a lot of in zoology and evolutionary ible- biology, you have a lot of women going into the science. But of course, those top positions are still, you know, very it's it's a male it's a male it's male heavy when you when you get to the very top. So, um, you know, we need to find a way of, of, of addressing that and, um, you know, just just valuing women and and and, you know, and all perspectives um, as, as as much as as male opinion.
1: Thanks a lot for that. Um, in closing, I want to ask you, um, I looked up basically while reading all of the animals, how they looked, like searching duck penises, you know, on the internet and um, also watching spiders doing their mating dance in the backdrop of, backdrop of staying alive and, and so on. So is there going to be a TV show based on the book is my question. <laughs>
0: oh well i'm ch- i'm ch- i am in conversation with a couple of different um networks um i mean i think it would be a glorious thing because you know there's as as you say there's so many great visual stories and there's there's, there's and a lot of the scientists i met hugely engaging and and really charismatic people with with great stories to tell so yeah i mean i think there's a you know i i, I you know i myself i produced um documentaries for many years and To me, there's very obviously a really terrific and much needed series because, I I mean, I I end up shouting at the television now, but it's because I feel like it's just the same old stories just told again and again and again, and it's always from the male perspective. So. You know, it it, it 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 would be a wonderful thing. So, fingers crossed. Watch watch this space. Watch this space. I'm 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 working on it. Basically. I will.
1: I will, and I'll be the first to to watch it. Really, Um I also think this would be very interesting. It would also be very nice to put the faces uh, to the names, also um, with regards to scientists and also uh, many animals that you. Uh, that you describe in the book. So thanks a lot, Lucy, for joining us today. It has been a wonderful discussion and a great, great book. I actually recommend it to everybody to pick it up if they want to laugh and learn about something while laughing.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate that one. It was a really enjoyable conversation. Thank you.